You are listening to the Dan Patrick Show on Fox Sports Radio. Uh, Ed joins us now. Uh, your three defensive players all time, you get them for their entire careers and they're healthy. Yeah, I'm going to take the obvious two and say Lawrence Taylor, Reggie White, and I'm going to go. I thought about Ed Reed. I thought about Deion Sanders, but I'm going to take Charles Woodson because oh. he could play corner and safety and in addition to intercepting passes, he rushed the quarterback and got sacks at an unusually high rate for a defensive back. Okay. How great was Dion? Dion was great. I mean, he was he could play offense, defense. He returned the ball on special teams. He was a unusual because he was a defensive player with offensive instincts when he got the ball in his hand. And I mean, you talk to guys like, you know, Troy Aikman who played with him and against him. He was legitimately a guy who created the question in the mind of a quarterback as to whether you were willing to challenge him on that side of the field. And the funniest thing I remember about Dion was kind of toward the end of his career in Dallas, there was a game on a Sunday where Peyton Manning and the Colts and Marvin Harrison, they threw at him an inordinate number of times, like 10 times. Hmm. And I, I had a uh, previously scheduled sit down with Dion uh, that next week. And so I asked him about this and he said, man, I ain't worried. I've been out there on that island longer than Gilligan. <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he laughed, as you can imagine, and so did I. And as I was leaving the room a few minutes later, having finished the interview, he said, oh, man. And I'm like, I said, what? And he said, I wanted to save that line for the playoffs. <laughs> he was already thinking of what lines he wanted to use at the Super Bowl week. <laughs> Is Aaron Donald encroaching on Reggie yeah. White territory here? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think he's the most dominant defensive player in the league right now and has been for, you know, almost his entire career. So without question, he's the most feared defensive player in the NFL right now. But yeah, that's a great point. You know, I didn't really think of guys who are currently playing and I eliminated all the guys that I never saw myself. So, you know, Deacon Jones and guys like that, I Night Train Lane, those guys who might have merited consideration from a slightly older person, of which there are not many anymore. When we, um, when we look at players now, though, with Terrell Davis getting in and, and being injured and having a six-year <laughs> career, can you be a Hall of Famer after four years, five years? I've never been a Hall of Fame voter, so I don't really know what the cutoff is, but I know that's a major consideration is longevity of career, although they've certainly made concessions not only for players, but even coaches, you know, recently. That was one of the arguments against Jimmy Johnson was that he didn't coach long enough to, uh, to merit it. I thought it was a ridiculous argument in his case, and I think it, for the most part, longevity matters unless a player was just incredibly dominant. Um, and, and that led to championship performances where otherwise they would not have existed. So I think that's why Jimmy Johnson and Terrell Davis get exceptions. But if you, like Aaron Donald, you win three defensive players of the year in, let's say, a five-year period, or J.J. Watt wins three. Like, is, is that enough where the voters are going to go, that's an MVP, or uh, that, that's a, a Hall of Fame? Well, I- I don't think I don't think those guys are going to have to win Super Bowls like most players would have to do yeah. uh, because of the the reason you decided. I mean, to dominate at your position on a team that wasn't good enough to get to a championship, I think says an awful lot about those players too. The biggest question in Dallas today is what? Well, for a time, it, I, how are they going to rebound from this? Um, this was a, an, a, an epic disaster, even by their standards. Jerry Jones acknowledged as much, you know, after the game saying that um, he, he couldn't remember being more disappointed, that he didn't see this coming, that 
when you have this collection of talent, you have to win. Um, and they didn't. Uh, not only did – I mean, this used to be a team that couldn't get to the NFC Championship game, couldn't get out of the divisional round. And this team wins 12 games, has a home game, and can't even get out of the wild card round. They were dominated at home. Only team to lose at home in wild card weekend, super wild card weekend, uh, was the Cowboys. Well, you tweeted this out that, you know, the Cowboys win total and point total was inflated by playing against bad teams in their own division. And this caught up Correct. with them that you almost start to believe, hey, we can go out there and put 50 points. Hey, we got two defensive players who are impactful players. Well, were they impactful when they were playing against substandard teams and that offense? Was it good against substandard teams? Um and I think we found out what the answer is here. You know, back in the 90s when the Cowboys were a dominant team, if you looked at the NFC East, I mean, you had Joe Gibbs coaching and, you know, Bill Parcells coaching and Lawrence Taylor, Phil Sims, you know, any number of great players, you know, Daryl, um, why can't I think of his name all of a sudden, Daryl Green, um, Reggie White, all those guys were in that division. And so, when you made it through that, that meant something. Like you were ready for anything at that point in the playoffs. And this team went six and zero against the NFC East, the only team in the league that went undefeated in its division. The point differential in those games, the Cowboys were plus one hundred and thirty three. They were six and six, including playoffs against non division opponents. Not only not only teams that weren't as good, but teams that they didn't know as well. And the point differential was just. 33 mm. plus 33 in yeah. way more games. Yeah. So, and, and if you look at it, you know, they, uh, at the end of the season, McCarthy talked about, you know, playing the way they did and trying to create momentum and, and uh, offensive confidence in that final game against the Eagles while the Eagles sat out like 16 starters, you know, the Cowboys scored 51 points and they were rolling into the playoffs and feel, but you know, look at what happened to them. They, they scored 43 at the time of season high against Atlanta, went outside the division, lost the next week. They scored uh, 56 against Washington. Uh, that was their new high. Went outside the division, lost the next week. And then they scored 51 against the Eagles, went outside the division in the playoffs, and lost. So, yeah, I think they got an inflated sense of self, and they weren't nearly the dominant team that the division made them appear to be. And then you have the coaching situation here. I know that Jerry Jones, I guess, has said that Mike McCarthy is coming back. You're, you're the two coaches you want to keep. You're probably going to lose at least one of them and Dan Quinn and Kellen Moore, but you're going to keep Mike McCarthy. Um, do you think that that's how this plays out? You lose both coordinators or just Dan Quinn? Well, it was interesting that right after the game, when Jerry Jones came out of the losing locker room, a place he never expected to be on this particular Sunday, he did walk over to us and I asked him directly about whether he would consider a coaching change under the circumstances. And I fully expected him to flatly shut it down. And he didn't. He said something to the effect of, I don't even want to address it. Oh, like so that you right, asked that right question. Okay. I, of course I did. <laughs> you know, because I, I, when I heard it, I was like, man, it's really easy. If you ask any owner of a playoff team right now, would they give you a, I don't know. I don't want to address that right now. Now, granted, no, most I, owners I think, don't do interviews, but right. it it felt like it was, hey, I, I can rubber stamp this and move on, and now he kind of left it in the ether there a little bit. Well, and, and let's put it in context. You know, Jerry Jones has been doing this for 30 years, and the first coach he fired was Tom Landry. Um, and he's either hired or fired or bought out every coach they've ever had in the history of the franchise. So he knows the gravity 
of the question, especially in the circumstances we're talking about, this horrific loss that they just suffered, which he fully admits. And, and he goes on after that answer to basically say, like I, I told you, like we had this incredible collection of talent. In other words, I as a general manager and we as a front office, we gave Mike <laughs> McCarthy this incredibly talented team and he train wrecked it at the, at the first opportunity in the postseason. So, yeah, I think Jerry knew what he was saying. And now whether they thought about that possibility, you know, for a few hours overnight, uh, I don't know. I don't know if he just wanted to make McCarthy feel uncomfortable that he wouldn't give him an endorsement in that moment. But and he still really hasn't said yet that he's coming back. It was Stephen Jones who said it yesterday uh, that he absolutely expected McCarthy back. And my understanding is McCarthy's going to speak to the media this afternoon uh, out at the star and I'll be there for that. Um, unless something I say on this show prevents that from happening, but, <laughs> but, um, but I, I guess I, I yeah, it was, I think the question uh, becomes more legitimate and timely because of what you said, the circumstances of, Hey, Kellen Moore's interviewing with the Broncos yesterday. He's interviewing with the Vikings and the dolphins this week. You know, Dan Quinn is probably going to get three or four offers. Um, and do you want to lose this guy as a defensive coordinator who took the worst defense in franchise history and in one year turned it into a great asset that actually outplayed your offense most of the season? So, but I think since he hasn't prevented Dan Quinn from interviewing, I'm assuming he's decided he's going to keep Mike McCarthy and let Dan Quinn go if he has to. He's Ed Werder. He covers the NFL for the mothership, also covers the Cowboys, of course. You know, you start to look at the end of that game. I thought that that kind of washed away the sins of McCarthy and Dak Prescott in that game uh, that Dak didn't have a good game. And now it feels like the refs did this to us. And, and you know, that Dak didn't do this to him. You didn't do anything for the first three quarters. Right. And time management, clock management with Mike McCarthy. We've seen it before. We shouldn't be surprised at any of this. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't buy the, the excuse of, Hey, we practice this. Well, if you practice it, you didn't practice this correctly. And it just felt like we're letting Dak Prescott off the hook a little bit, that that was a poor performance. Well, obviously, I think there were a lot of games where what we saw the other day played itself out, happened in the Denver loss at home. It happened in the Raider loss at home. Uh, and it happened again against the 49ers, which is for three quarters, the offense does nothing. Yeah. Um, and then there's this frantic effort to get, back in the game with some level of success, but in none of those games did they ever retake the lead. This was a team that never came from behind all season long. Um, but I don't think it was entirely Dak Prescott's fault. Do I think Dak in his first year back from this catastrophic injury he suffered last year was the same player? No, I don't think he was. Uh, he was not the dual threat that he was before that injury against the Giants last year. But I, I think the, the, the most significant problem they have is their offensive line and their inability to create a running game. And, you know, I mean, Ezekiel Elliott had one yard, averaged one yard per rush the other day against the 49ers before first contact, which is the worst uh, in four career playoff games for Zeke. And um, even though they played half the game and Nick Bosa wasn't out there rushing the passer, yeah. with a four-man rush, Dak got pressured 20 times and sacked five times. I think the biggest question about this offense is, how come there were so few times when Dak got the ball in the shotgun or drop, got to the top of his drop and let it go because his, his first read or his second read was open? Where were those throws? It was constantly him holding the ball deep into the progression, pressure starting to come, and then dump it off somewhere. Uh, why isn't C.D. Lamb a bigger factor? Why isn't Tony Pollard used differently? 
I mean, to me, those are the bigger questions than, hey, how come Dak Prescott can't win in a playoff game like this? Dak did have an apology, and as soon as I heard the words, I was like, oh, he's going to walk those words back, where he basically was, you know, saying, complimenting the uh, the crowd, the fans. He condoned, right, he condoned it. Yeah, throwing debris at the officials, uh, but he, I guess he issued a statement yesterday. He did. The, the interesting thing was when, when he said it, um, he thought initially that people were talking about, he didn't see it happen. And so when it was described to him and he was asked about it in his postgame news conference, he thought people were throwing trash at Demarcus Lawrence and other players because some of them uh, were hit with some of the debris. Um, and then when some, when he, so he answered the question and he, and he criticized that behavior. But then when it was made clear to him that it was the officials who were the target, he said, you know, something like, well, credit to them then, you know, kind of a thing um, and endorsed that. And I think what, it was out of character for Dak to say that. Uh, I, think, I think he meant what he said in terms of his apology. Uh, I think it was sincere, and he regrets it. Now, whether there's fallout for that for the Cowboys next year as, you know, how games are called early in the season, that remains to be seen. But one of the things that happened to this team late in the year was, I believe it probably was Mike McCarthy, who basically gave the players um, the excuse for losing that the officials were against them. Like, they were always trying to beat the opposing team and this third element, the officials. And the reality is they were the most penalized team in the NFL all regular season. They're the only team in the NFL, Dan, that had two games where they were assessed 14 penalties. The only team. There were only four such games in the whole league. They had half of them. <laughs> and so for, the, for them to be arguing, were, are there missed calls always against both teams in every game? But the fact that they're claiming that the officials are biased against them to the point that, it's detrimental and actually causes them to lose. It's preposterous. And now that the Cowboys are out of the playoffs, what are you going to do? What are you covering now? Oh, there's, there's plenty of more uh, Cowboys um, funerals to, to eulogize um, <laughs> for me to officiate. Uh, I don't know. Normally, normally I go on and, and cover more playoff games and, and put them aside. But in this case, I think there's a little more interest in continuing to examine why this happened even though you can argue same outcome they've had for 26 <laughs> consecutive seasons <laughs> they many, don't get to a championship game how many playoff wins have you covered for the cowboys a lot because i covered the 90s teams oh okay okay <laughs> so i covered all i covered the three super bowl wins i covered the lo the loss in the championship game under switzer to the 49ers the, uh i guess there have been three or four since you could say since Aikman's retirement, how many have you covered? And I would say there's what Aikman's or uh, Romo won one, Dax won one. That's it. <laughs> there was no social media the last time they won. There was no internet the last time they won a Super Bowl, right? It was a better world. Man. Oh, it was. It was. <laughs> oh, safe travels, Ed. Thank you as always. Great to hear from you, buddy. Thanks for the invite, Dan. That's Ed Werder, ESPN NFL reporter. And, of course, he uh, covers the Cowboys. Thanks for listening to the Dan Patrick Show podcast. Be sure to catch us live every weekday morning, 9 to noon Eastern or 6 to 9 Pacific on Fox Sports Radio. Find your local station for the Dan Patrick Show at foxsportsradio.com or stream us live every day on the iHeartRadio app by searching FSR. Or stream us live on the Peacock app. Let's bring in Peter Schrager, co-host of the NFL Network's Good Morning Football, FoxSports.com senior national writer. You remember where you were on the tuck rule? 
college dorm, Emory University. Uh, Saturday night game had the Raiders winning that one. Greg Beekert did too. Tyrone Wheatley did as well. I still think uh, I know exactly where I was for that one. Dan, where were you? Any uh, girls in the dorm? No, come on, me? No. <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. Me doing me flipping through football cards and playing Stratomatic baseball. That Ooh. was me in college, my friend. Ooh. I was a big Stratomatic guy. We would play <laughs> usually at Sports Center. Uh, after Sports Center, I'd stay, and Gary Miller and I would we would play Stratomatic baseball, and it was awesome. Loved it. It's the best. Yeah. Um, you know, I would rather have had girls in the dorm room when I was in college, but you know, Stratomatic, I guess, that filled the void there. You want for me to you. lie to you? I can lie to you. <laughs> I can <be> <laughs> You're a journalist. You're a journalist here. Um, make a case. I want you to defend uh, Cliff Kingsbury. Okay. Can you? All right. Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, I told you back in August, the Cardinals are going to make the playoffs. I think you'd say that's a pretty good season. If I didn't tell you back in August that they were going to get embarrassed in the playoffs, you might say that's no good. I, I thought Kyler had his worst game as a pro. I think this team got absolutely embarrassed. But who, who are you replacing Cliff Kingsbury with in that situation? Would you rather have another coach and think that that's going to get a different outcome? That team had no shot on Monday night. So my defense of Kingsbury is that uh, that was Kyler's worst game. They were without DeAndre Hopkins, and they got blown out from go. Um, I don't think that was an issue of preparation. I think they played that game ten times with what was on the field and how that game went, and the Rams are going to win. I've seen a lot of coaches lose, and here's the deal. If Cliff Kingsbury was to be blown out or if he was to be fired, which he very well may could be, very well, very well may could be I think there would be a line of NFL teams that would hire him as an offensive coordinator, and I think there would be a line twice as long of college teams that would hire him as a head coach. So my defense of it is first playoff game, they got blown out. Quarterback was awful. Team was awful. Everything was awful. I don't think you've got to you know, go say, hey, we need a new coach, and that's why we lost. Defend Mike McCarthy. Hmm, that's a little tougher. <laughs> okay. It's a little tougher. I think the, the 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 amount of quality wins that the Cardinals had this season were were lengthy. They won big games against San Francisco, won big games against the Rams. They went into Dallas. I, I picked the Niners to win this game, then beforehand, and I got a lot of slack because I was very cocksure about it. And everywhere I went was like, I don't see how the Cowboys lose. I certainly don't see how Mike McCarthy outcoaches Kyle Shanahan in the clutch and in the clutch and the moments mattered most. We have that play at the end. And I, I also look at the fake punt situation where, like, all season long, it felt like there was an ongoing verbal spat going on, whether they get along or not, and I'm sure they do, between Mike McCarthy and Fossil, the special teams coach, on the sidelines in real time. And there was always something going on. And so to get the penalty right after the fake punt just never felt like the Cowboys were as buttoned up. And when you get 14 penalties, that is something I could point to the coach and say, hey, it's been a plaguing them all season, 127 penalties all year. Like At no point was it ever cleaned up. And when they needed the wins the most against the Raiders on Thanksgiving, loss against the Cardinals in that big game in week 16 loss. And then you get another home game, another home game. Here we go. Dak just threw five touchdowns against the, uh, the, the zombie Eagles last week. And we celebrated that performance and they, they you know, they're down by 23 to seven have to claw back and then have that play at the end. I just never felt like this team was as disciplined um, 
as you'd like to see. And I think Mike should come back. I think he should get another shot. This was great second year, and we know how those things go. And year three, I think they'll be much better, but they have to clean up the penalties. But who would have thought that their offensive line would be one of their problems? Because it used to be one of their strong points. That offensive line was not good at all against San Francisco. No, it wasn't. And I, I, I think the pressure was on throughout, and that was even without Bosa and Warner for the second half. Here's what I would also point to. Debo Samuel touched the ball you know, every time they can get it to him, and they went and had him in the backfield, had him at wide receiver. Debo was, you know, everyone in the building knew. Debo is how the Niners are going to beat the Cowboys, and that's exactly what happened. CeeDee Lamb, one touch, one catch, and then he had the offside, the, uh, the false start. It's like I know everyone's taking apart the Cowboys. I look at that and say, how do you not – Game plan a way to get C.D. Lamb the ball as many times as you can. If they could do it with Debo Samuel and you could find a way to get him in the backfield or use him in a bubble screen, but like you shouldn't be going to Dalton Schultz and, and Cedric Wilson when the, in the big moments that matter the most. I could critique this game a million ways. I think if the Cowboys had won, um, we would be an entirely different NFL media this week. It would be Cowboys, mayhem. There'd be so much juice. There still is a lot of juice, but <laughs> the fact they lost in such a deflating way, I don't know. It just doesn't feel the same as it would have had they won. I know you had the Rams and the Chiefs in the Super Bowl. Does that sound right? Yeah, September. That was my pick before the season. Yeah, I have uh, Packers and the Chiefs. Uh, you need a do-over? Or you you comfortable with Rams-Chiefs? I've been asked to do do-overs when the Rams lost three straight, when the Chiefs lost. No, I'm, I'm staying in there, and I think okay. the Rams okay. saved, saved their best game for that Monday night game. They dismantled the Cardinals, and I know yesterday people were like, well, Stafford didn't have to do much. Stafford went, I don't know, 13-17, looked dialed in, 200 yards, looked perfect to me. I, I think that they're ready to take on the, the Bucks, and they've beaten them twice in the last two years, and I know McVay's not scared of going into that building. I, I feel like the Rams might beat the Bucks this weekend. He's Peter Schrager, co-host. Of, no, you got to be a little bit more emphatic than they might be. Now, of course, they can beat yeah. them. How about this? Uh, we're doing this on Wednesday. The Rams, I might favor the Rams. <laughs> on, 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 I'm not making a pick yet. I gotta see, I, honestly, I'm being dead serious with you. i got to see if Kristen Wirfs is out there. i got to see if Ryan Jensen's out there. A lot of us, we will make bold predictions, and it's not even that bold. It's a three-point game. It's not crazy. But I honestly don't know if the Rams win if, if Leonard Fournette's in there and if their two offensive linemen are in there. So I, I need to see the health status. I know that's taking the easy way out on a Wednesday. Better story if the Bills advance or the Chiefs advance? Ooh. Better story, I think, is the Bills. And it's like, I, I think it's, it's about Josh Allen, really, and how he's had to chip away year after year after year. And then this is the team that got the best of them last year and kept them away. Um, I think it's the Bills. I think last week they finally buried, you know, one big dragon master that they've had to deal with, and that's the Patriots for 20 years in their division. And the Chiefs have gotten the best of them in the playoffs last year in Arrowhead. I think if the Bills are doing like, I was thinking about Los Angeles for the Super Bowl. If either one of these two fan bases do go on and beat the AFC uh, championship game contender from the Titans-Bengals, I think it would be really cool. I think you're going to see a lot of Bills fans travel to Los Angeles. It's a warm-weather city, and it's not going to be like a small market team. I feel like Bills fans come out, um, and then, of course, the Chiefs fans show up wherever they go. So I, I think both of these teams are great stories. Obviously, the Mahomes storyline, and, hey, we're not done yet. Um, but I think Buffalo, this is kind of feeling like a, a destiny miracle season, and if they get there to the Super Bowl in Los Angeles, that's pretty cool. Let's look at the options for the Steelers to replace Ben Roethlisberger. Oh, by the way, T.J. Watt was with us yesterday. He said, I still don't know if he's retiring. He never told us anything, but let's assume Ben is done. 
So if you're Mike Tomlin, what's plan A? I've heard a lot of rumors and a lot of, I don't, I think that I don't think draft is the way to go with this veteran locker room with the Minkos and with the Watts and, and with Cam Hayward. I'm not sure they're going to attend the, the Rain Star rookie. I don't know if Haskins has shown enough this year. And I certainly don't think Mason Rudolph has in the past few years. So I would look at a veteran quarterback. I really would. And I'm not saying it's necessarily Rogers or Wilson, but there is that next year. And you're looking at names who might be available and it could be Garoppolo. It could be cousins. It could be uh, Jameis Winston. It could be a lot of names, but I think I would look at that. That that it could be that, you know, it could be Cousins or Garoppolo, as I said. But it also could be guys that are maybe younger, and it's a Trubisky type or someone like that that hasn't had that opportunity to ever, you know, start this season, but is still laying in the weeds and waiting to go. So, I look at all the veteran quarterbacks, but I don't know if they're going to be able to land uh, a Russell or an Aaron Rodgers or Deshaun Watson. Wow. Well, I wonder how this all plays out, but it feels like if Rodgers leaves they're going to make sure he goes to an AFC team. If Russell leaves, they're going to make sure he goes to an AFC team. You think that sounds logical? Uh, sounds about, about right to me. It doesn't, doesn't look like they want to face either one of those guys in the playoffs from those sides. I'm feeling more and more that Rodgers and Wilson, who, if you ask me week 10, uh, you know, which teams are they going for? We could do the whole Denver and Carolina and Miami conversation. More and more, I, I'm not sure either one of those guys is gone just yet. And I, I think we're going to have to see how the next few weeks play out. Remember, Russell said what he said on your show last year around Super Bowl week, I think it was, and that's when this whole thing started. Um, Ken Norton was fired yesterday. I'd keep an eye on what's going on in Seattle the next few weeks because anyone who tells you that they're plugged into Seattle, that might have been the case when you know Paul Allen was in charge and Pete Carroll was infallible and all this stuff. Like No one talks to Jody Allen, the owner right now. She's the sister of, uh, of Paul Allen, and she's running the show right now. And whether there have been conversations with Pete and John Schneider and all those guys and Russell – that she's been having, I don't think the media is plugged into that. So I'd say let's give it a couple weeks here before we immediately assume Russell's going or staying. You know, as somebody who gathers information, um, how often do you question the person who's giving you that information as to why they're giving you that information? Mm, I think I'm pretty good hit rate. I know I've had a couple misses, but I would like to think that I'm not one who's easily led down the wrong road for personal benefit because that'll burn me forever. I don't think I'm going anywhere. And if you, if you burn me, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty clean with it that, Hey, I don't want to hear from you. And the stuff that I get a lot of smoke screens with is the NFL draft. And that's kind of understandable that, Hey, we're not going to mention this guy when we talk to you about who we like. And then they end up taking him. I'm like, Hey, you didn't mention him yeah, because we wanted him. But this kind of stuff where it's uh coaches being fired and coaches getting hired. I think everyone's pretty spot on with me. And I, I usually am pretty accurate. Well, it's like I got roughed up by a guy with the NFL Network when I'd mentioned nobody was interested in Carson Wentz and nobody was calling the Eagles. And that person's Philadelphia-based, so probably wants to play nice with the Eagles, even though we know Carson Wentz, nobody wanted Carson Wentz other than, you know, it was the Colts and that was about it. I don't even know if the Colts still want him, Pete. Yeah, and then you saw what uh, Chris Ballard, their GM, had to say. It wasn't a rousing, hey, we love, but hey, they're tied onto him now for three more years. They'd have to do some really, really <laughs> creative, creative. And uh, to your point, I think after this year, after another year of it and him not delivering in the final two weeks of the season, I, I really don't know if there's a market for Carson Wentz, especially at the salary that he has. All right, three defenders all time from any teams. Now, any position, you could have – three from whatever generation you want, but uh, tell me who and why you would have. 
All right. Can I give you? Can I give a question though? Is it? Am I taking any player from any individual season, or is it the breadth of their career? Because there are guys that had great seasons individually that I would say I can't say in good faith I would take the the career. Or are you saying just career. take any three? You have to overall. You right. get them their entire going, career. They stay healthy their entire career. I'm going right across my defensive line, and this is no disrespect to Champ Bailey or Dion or or Lawrence Taylor or Derek Thomas, but I'm going Bruce Smith on one end. I'm going Aaron Donald in the middle, and I'm going Reggie White right next to him. <laughs> uh, all you need is a three-man rush in a situation like that, Peter. <laughs> good, good, good luck. Good luck getting a pass off with those three. It doesn't Donald push it from the inside, Reggie inside or outside, and then Bruce Smith, who I think is criminally underrated when we talk about great defensive players. Like everyone brings up LT and everyone brings up Reggie, but like. Bruce Smith and Derek Thomas were right up there with those guys every single season in the same generation. It doesn't matter who my secondary is if I've got those three guys no. up front. <laughs> you pick. Dan Etz can be a secondary. We're good. We'll, we'll roll with that. Yeah, I, having seen Lawrence Taylor in his prime and I, like just the image of, of watching him play, what he did and how teams game – I don't know if there's – I don't know if teams game plan for a defensive player like they did in Lawrence Taylor. He changed yeah. the NFL. I don't know how many other defensive players you can say he changed the NFL, but you know, the way tight ends, you know, what Joe Gibbs did, you got to have yeah. a, another guy, you got to chip, you got to tight ends, got to help the uh, tackle. Like Lawrence Taylor changed the game with his style. And, and the accolades are there. When you talk about the defensive player of the year as a rookie, you talk about an MVP from the defensive spot, 1986, the only player to do it um, in the last three or four decades. I will be honest, though, and it's not that I'm biased. Like, like I told you, I was in college during the Tuck World game, so do the math. I just missed peak LT. I got 1990 LT where he has the big uh, strip of Roger Craig and, and the Giants are a great team. I got that the lighter state is like watching in person Reggie White dismantle defense, offensive lines and then watching what Aaron Donald does in the real time and then knowing that over 20 years Bruce Smith compiled all those sacks and just dominated week in, week out. I'm going with those three, and it's nothing against LT. I, just, I wasn't alive and I wasn't watching when he was doing what he was doing in the early 80s. Give me the surprise result this weekend. Huh. The surprise result, I think, is uh, San Francisco potentially going in there and bullying the Packers around. I'm not sure if I'm picking them yet, but I know Kyle Shanahan by no means is scared of uh, coaching staff of Mike, of Matt LaFleur, Joe Barry, and Nathaniel Hackett, three guys he's worked with before, and they have gotten the best of Rodgers in playoff games in the past. Um, I, I would not be surprised if this was one of those where – San Francisco comes in and just it's a low-scoring game, and Rodgers has to pull a rabbit out of his hat, and Bosa or Warner makes a play if they're healthy, and they get it done. What do you think the fallout would be if the Packers lost this weekend? Tune in on Monday. <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes when, uh, when the world is burning, it's good for rating. So I don't know. Let's see. We'll just watch. Thank you, buddy. Great to talk to you. Thanks for listening to the Dan Patrick Show podcast. Be sure to catch us live every weekday morning, 9 until noon Eastern, 6 to 9 Pacific on Fox Sports Radio. And you can find us on the iHeartRadio app at FSR, or stream us live on the Peacock app. Mike check. Hey, Mike check. check. If you want exclusive insight from the biggest names in the sports game, what's good? This is national champion and former pro baller Chris Johnson. And let me tell you a little bit about my new series, KJ Live. KJ Live is the only show featuring me going one-on-one with the brightest basketball minds on the planet to get the real. And when I say real... 
I mean that real. I got legendary Hall of Famers, elite coaches, and the top basketball insiders bringing you a unique perspective on all things hoops culture that you will not find anywhere else. To make your next move your best move and tap in with me on KJ Live, wherever you get your podcast from. The uh, Athletic had a big scoop on Monday. Sam Amick, the senior NBA writer, said uh, sources, uh, the Lakers head coach Frank Vogel's job in serious jeopardy despite the Jazz win. They have a game tonight, which uh, would lead me to believe is Frank Vogel's job still in jeopardy as they host the Pacers. Sam, good morning. Good morning, Dan. Thanks for having me, sir. So is his job Uh, in jeopardy? It is, for sure. Uh, You know, I... To me, the human element, Dan, is, is like always coming into play here. The emotions got really, really high after the Denver loss, which shouldn't shock anybody, you know, trailing by 45 at one point, losing by 37. You know, yes, you don't have Anthony Davis, but the Nuggets don't have Jamal Murray. They don't have Michael Porter Jr. So that was as close as Frank had come to losing his job. And, you know, I saw your segment earlier and, and your two cents on why they wouldn't just fire him now. And, and, you, you know, you kind of got me to, to make sure I had the answer to that question ready for you. The truth is, I don't think they have the faith in the rest of the coaching staff. You know, David no. Fisdale is a former head coach and the kind of guy who certainly has the chops to do it. Um, but there is a sense that in the collective, in terms of the staff, they don't necessarily think that it would put them in a better spot. And to Frank's credit, I know it's just one game, but that Utah game was big because the mood was such that if those players wanted to say goodbye to him, then then all they had to do was roll over. And they obviously didn't do that. Yeah. But if they lose tonight at home to the Pacers or, you know, they go on this road trip and they, you know, no, I hear you for sure. I, 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 it is going to continue to be tenuous, but the jazz game specifically, (laughs) (laughs) the jazz game specifically is like, you have LeBron choosing in Denver to not address the media, which is very un LeBron like. And then he later explained, that he didn't want to say things that he would regret, which kind of tells you how everybody was feeling from the front office to the players, to the owner, everybody's upset. Um, and then LeBron apologizes on Twitter, which is not the kind of thing he typically does. Obviously you have magic out there tweeting. So all those things thrown together made the jazz win huge, but yeah, like it's going to continue to be challenging um, and, and we'll see where it goes. Okay. If they had lost to Utah <clears throat> on Monday night, was he going to get fired? Uh, I think it was a very, very strong possibility, depending on, it sounds funny, but the optics, yes, wins and losses matter. If you lose by two and you play well and still send the message. I mean, all throughout that game, it's funny. A lot of the Lakers media core and and my colleague, Bill Oram, who I obviously authored this story with and others were tweeting about how the scary part for the Lakers in that game is that they were playing really well, but then they would fall behind and you would, start in real time asking that question of, you know, how do you separate playing well versus winning? And so, I, you know, I don't know for sure what would have happened after the Utah game, but it was extremely touch and go. And if they had been blown out, uh, then I think Frank probably would have been out. Um, but again, you have all these layers to it, right? You've got the fact that when Frank was in trouble before, and I'm talking earlier in the season, like we reported, you know, Kurt Rambis, who's an advisor with the Lakers, had made it clear to that coaching staff that they were in a bad spot. Then Frank gets COVID. Then he's out for five games. You know, to me, one of the interesting what-if scenarios is, you know, David Fisdale ends up going one and four. 
during that stretch. And so it's a small sample size, but as ownership in the front office looks at it and asks the question of, you know, if, if not this guy, then what are we doing? That, that didn't paint a picture that it would be rosier on the other side. And I think that kind of stuff is coming into play too. What, what is Frank Vogel not doing that is going to cost him his job? He didn't build the team. Right. No, I'm with you. I mean, this is the tricky part. You know this. You've been doing it so long. The tricky part of being the messenger on these types of stories is we're certainly not endorsing the logic behind <laughs> firing Frank. You know what I'm saying? Like we're relaying what's happening internally. But opinion-wise, I would 100% fall into your side. Frank is a high-level coach, a guy who, after winning a championship, I don't think deserved – to have to wait as long as he did for an extension. That was curious. And I think, you know, missing the mark on the Lakers part. Then when he got the extension, as we reported at the time, they only gave him an additional year. So he's running through 2022, 2023. That was another sign that the ground beneath him wasn't all that stable. Um, so we kind of knew this going in. And it then comes down to the old pro sports adage of how you can't fire the players. You know, I just covered this. In my backyard in Sacramento, Luke Walton gets fired. Certainly he had made mistakes. The Kings aren't any better for it. You know, they promoted Alvin Gentry. But it's when the pressure reaches a point at these different organizations that the, you feel like just something has to be done. It's either the coaching change or it's a big trade or a GM loses his job. In this case, you know, that's not what's going to happen right now. Um, and, and trade deadline coming up quick. So maybe they can find a way to, to improve around the edges and relieve pressure elsewhere. Sam Amick, the senior NBA writer for The Athletic. If I gave the Lakers a do-over with Russell Westbrook. Yeah, I don't think they would do it. And, and I think in all my years of covering the league, one of the more unique, if not, you know, kind of a, a case all its own situations regarding the communication between the star players, the front office, and, and the machinations behind how this trade came to be are not conventional, meaning that, you know, as, as you know, and a lot of people know by now, you know, Russell Westbrook had this strong desire to come play for the Lakers, to come home, had made that clear, had gone to LeBron James's house and met with LeBron and Anthony Davis and talked about this vision. You know, the front office ends up greenlighting it. They end up doing it. But, you know, in doing so, they had a Buddy Heald trade with Sacramento that was on the brink of being done that ended up getting derailed. So whether it's, you know, turning back time and doing the Buddy Heald trade to give you more shooting and just, you know, let LeBron and AD try to repeat what they did in 2020, I think they would do it over again because it's – I think Russ is an all-time great. He's an incredible player in the right environment. Oh, so this you team, think that they would do this deal again with Russ? No, I'm sorry if I wasn't clear. I don't think they would do it. Oh, okay. I think they would – no, I don't think they would do it. Okay. I think what they're learning the hard way is, and I'm, I'm parroting the scouts that I've talked to, about this is that Russ, the ceiling on how much Russ helps you is, is fairly low because you have LeBron James on your team that, you know, he's not helping you off the ball. And if LeBron got hurt, Russ, you know, knock on wood, he doesn't. Russ could be a savior for the Lakers. He could be the kind of guy that keeps them afloat, you know, and, and, and wins them games because then Russ could be Russ. That's what puzzled me so much about his desire to make this move in the first place. Dan, when he went from Houston to Washington, the whole desire then was I'm tired of sacrificing with James Harden <laughs> and I want to go be Russ again. And Scotty Brooks, his old buddy from Oklahoma city was sitting there in the nation's capital saying, let's do it. Let's go. And they did it. And guess what? For six months at the tail end of last season, 
the optics around Russ were great again because he was fantastic. Uh, in that environment, he was a very good player. In this one, he just doesn't help them that much. I can't help but wonder about the supporting cast that they have now and the supporting cast that they had when LeBron got there with Ingram right. and Lonzo Ball. I mean, I go back to Julius Randle. You can throw in Kuzma in there. Uh, you know, if you said to LeBron, hey, you can have a do-over here. <laughs> we're, we're full of do-overs here. Would he want right. to have those young kids there with him now? I know they rolled the dice. They got Anthony Davis. They won a championship. But right. long-term, who's going to help you win more championships, Anthony Davis or that supporting cast that you got rid of? I, I mean, on that one, I'm going to say LeBron – does exactly what they did now would he love to have held on to one or two more of those players yep. for sure but a, a chip is a chip you know what i mean and for him you know to get that fourth one to do it in a third market with a third team gave him a you know another layer to his legacy that, that nobody can ever take away and you do get the sense lebron is is challenging for me to even cover because the guy works his tail off. You can't question the work ethic, the way he, you know, prepares his body and competes. Um, and so he's still trying to play like LeBron, but you do have a feeling like he's going to give it his best go. But because he got a championship with the Lakers, you know, that this is a, a successful chapter in his career. And sure, he would love to put another cherry on top. So I don't think he would trade that, that deal. Uh, but, for you know, you see Lonzo balling out in Chicago. You know, Brandon's become a very good player in New Orleans and Kuzma doing his thing in D.C. I mean, those guys would help. And within all that, you're talking about losing Alex Caruso, um, prioritizing yeah. Taylor Horton Tucker, you know, who's not having a very good year, signing Kendrick Nunn. And this is just unfortunate, but, you know, he hasn't even hit the floor yet because of injuries. So the role players, as much as we talk about Russ, I mean, the role players might even be a, a more relevant discussion with the Lakers. Is there a market, trade market for Ben Simmons? Yes, 100%. Um, I'm somewhat surprised by the, you know, I wrote last week about some of the concerns coming from interested teams regarding, you know, not only Ben's kind of the, the uncertainty around where his head is at, where his game would be at, but even through all that, there's a ton of interest. And, you know, it's just a matter of reading Daryl Morey's mind in Philly and trying to find out, does he actually want to get a deal done before the deadline or, is he stalling to get to this summer? You know, one of the growing subplots, if you will, is, you know, his desire to reunite with James Harden again and do a sign and trade with Brooklyn, potentially. Um, you know, where does Joel Embiid fit into all this? And so, you know, you, you got to be kind of a psychologist to figure this thing out right now. But, but you know, yeah, there's a market. Um, you know, Arsham Sharania at The Athletic had, had pegged uh, Sacramento, Portland, Atlanta, Indiana, Minnesota as the five leaders in that clubhouse could be somebody else. But uh, yeah, there's, a, I think a pretty robust market. Do you think it gets done right now? I'm kind of, I'm saying yes. Because it, now I'm a little bit, you know, hesitation is that I'm guilty of listening to a lot of the teams that want him, you know, this admittedly, this is not the Sixers quietly telling me, yeah, we got to get something done. Like I haven't heard that. Um, and, and the Ben Simmons people don't, have total clarity either though they're quick to tell you all right if they don't do a deal like don't think ben's coming back you know i don't think my prediction would be he's he's not going to play for them this season if he doesn't get traded so that's where you got to reconcile with the big fella you know joel Embiid made headlines the other day when he talked about the fact that he didn't think they had urgency to make change right now 
um, so basically supported the front office and their stance and, and kind of created the appearance of patience on their side. And, and that's where this stuff kind of gets fun because the next few weeks we're going to filter through all that and figure out what was fact and what was fiction. Congrats on the story there, Sam. Thanks for joining us as always. We appreciate it. You got it, Dan. Thanks, Dan. Sam Amick, the uh, senior NBA writer for The Athletic.